to get the crime writers on after show right now go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media i'm rebecca lavoy and this is crime writers on Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, two boys emerge in a Canadian town claiming to have grown up in the wilderness. What's the real story behind their appearance? We'll review season three of Chameleon, Wild Boys. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, host, of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband, wild boy, and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of Dead on Deadline, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. And finally, our resident Doubting Thomas, author of the City Trilogy, host of Strange Arrivals, and the Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Laura, what's going on with your new office in downtown Exeter? You mean the clubhouse? <laughs> yeah. I'm g- so if you walk by the building, what does it say, like uh, the sign on your door or, you know, where the mail is? What, what is it? Does it say Laura Bricker? So there's no sign yet because um, we're, we're brainstorming ideas. And I feel like uh, I was going to say Laura Bricker Incorporated. And then I was like, Laura Bricker Inc., I-N-K, because there's like a lot of things that fall under the Laura Bricker umbrella. Laura Bricker Enterprises, Laura Bricker Worldwide. I mean, I would take suggestions. So we should ask the listeners. Yeah. Like we do with your Jimmy Buffett name. We should do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And what you asked when I came up with Leave it to Bricker. So what is in my little office right now where I do my writing and also where I keep up on my town gossip and things like that because it's easier for people to access me. I have a fainting couch. Mm-hmm. I have a giant desk. Mm-hmm. I have a refrigerator. Mm-hmm. And I have some other like I have some fun. I mean, the refrigerator is key, except it's not working so well right now. But yeah, there, so there I would definitely roll ups in there <laughs> and fancy no. Dijon ketchups. Uh no, there are those weird little seltzers that have funny names like unicorn kisses. Ah, you know that reminds me. I remember when Sean Spicer. When he first became (laughs) the press secretary and he like stole that mini fridge from like the legislative office building or whatever. And like because he didn't have one and he really wanted it over. And he was like, there's a story about him like carrying the little fridge over to his office in the White House. Remember that? Yeah. Amazon delivers, Sean. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, now that that's been resolved, our listeners are going to name Laura Bricker's fake ass company. It's not a fake ass company, <laughs> but they are going to put they're going to they're going to decide what's going to be on the sign that hangs your shingle. They're going to name your shingle. Yep. Is what they're going to do. Okay. They're going to name mm-hmm. my shingle. Send your suggestions to crimewriterson at gmail.com or put them in our Facebook group or tweet them to at crimewriterson and we'll collect them there, right? Yeah. Okay, great. All right. I think we should go ahead with our review, shall we? Let's do it. Let's get it done. They weren't doing anything shady or nefarious. They were just walking by. But it was enough to trip this alarm within me that rang out, something is up. In 2003, a pair of boys emerged from the woods around Vernon, British Columbia. They claimed to have lived their lives in the wilderness with no contact with civilization. 
They lived in some sort of cabin that was partially or fully underground. Had apparently never seen a telephone. Uh, They'd never been to school. They'd never been to dentists. They'd had no access to media. They weren't ever in a hospital, nothing. Uh, They were unfamiliar with uh, television. As the town rallied behind them, the so-called Bush Boys of B.C. attracted international media attention, as well as the suspicions of the Mounties who wanted to know their true identities. Tom and Will Green know something that not Tammy, not the lawyer, nor anyone they've met in Vernon knows. They know that of everything they've said, who they are, where they're from, and what they were doing in Vernon in the first place, they know that not a single word of it is true. From Campside Media, season three of Chameleon, Wild Boys, looks back at the strange tale that gripped two nations. Vernon resident and podcast host Sam Mullins recounts how the brothers captured the goodwill of a Canadian community and how the story fell apart. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Wild Boys. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. All right, guys, we cannot talk about this podcast without first talking about its host, Sam Mullins, one of my new favorite podcast hosts after just listening to a few episodes of this show. Kevin Flynn, your thoughts on Sam Mullins? I'm calling him Canadian Taberski. <laughs> Kataberski. All right. Look, his writing is clever without being flashy. Sure, we don't have the best ski hill in the Okanagan or the cool wineries or malls. And we don't have the most impressive, notable people section on our Wikipedia page. But we don't care about that. Because in our town, we look out for each other. He smoothly transitions into, like, more sympathetic observations. He's not strictly a journalist. He's like a performer and a storyteller by trade. But, like we would say in sports, he's a multi-tool player. Hmm. And he's bringing all those tools. A utility player? No, not a utility player. He's a star, but he's got... He can hit for average. He can hit for distance. He can. He's got glove. No, I get that's you know. He's a five-tool player. Huh? Right, Toby. I don't know the sports analogies. Yeah, it's utility player is like somebody who's like not that good, but can do enough stuff that you keep them around. I don't oh, like me. So like I'm a utility that, player. No, I was not. I'm not implying that any one of us is a <laughs> utility player. But that's not what Kevin was implying either. It's that he's just you know he's got the full package. Yeah. Doesn't he seem like lovely too? Like, doesn't he seem like, so in episode four, Toby, he does this thing where he talks about trying to get people to talk to him. And it's like, you know, I sent my prom date in high school a Facebook message. I like asked my friend to tell his dad to vouch for me. And like a lot of people could write that and say that and it would just sound stupid. And there's just like something about it that seems lovely and, and real and Canadian, if that makes sense. I was struck by how... No one wanted to talk about it. I'd need to call my prom date's mom to get her to text an old friend of hers to vouch for me. Or I'd have to Facebook message a guy that I was in a high school play with so that he could tell his dad that he should trust me. Yeah, no, I think he comes off as being sort of a a genuine, nice person. I think what we'll probably talk about the last little bit of the fourth episode, the last one that we talked about. But, you know, I think it also just starts right from the beginning, right, where he kind of talks about his town and a little bit about, you know, the boys showing up in his town and then about what he was like at that time uh, in his three necklaces that he puts on every morning, including the puka <laughs> shells. 
So yeah, you know, it's it's like good natured poking a little fun at himself in the times. He's very engaging as a talker, and I think we'll we'll probably talk in a little bit about how you know he constructs this story. Yeah, to be fair, Toby, that is when the OC first came out, so those necklaces were <laughs> very appropriate. Laura- I just got to say before we go to Laura, my favorite line of the entire thing uh, was when he's describing the convenience store. If I could distill the vibe of Cal Store into one transaction, it'd be a teenager in a bathing suit buying a slushy and then paying with a wet $5 bill. And then when the cashier's back is turned, they steal a lighter. That kind of place. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. My favorite line is when he's describing the kilometer. And for those of you Americans, a kilometer is like a mile if it made sense. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That was fantastic. Laura, even you sent me a note about Sam Mullins. What are your thoughts about this nice man? I just think that I love the storytelling. I love the fact that he has a connection. I love the fact that the opening scene is him talking about these boys coming out of the woods. And I love the way that he tells the story in a way that's like so engaging that you keep listening. Even though you kind of think you know what's going to happen, it doesn't matter because he's telling the story in a way that you are engaged and you are active and you are listening. And it's just entertaining because this is a bonkers freaking story, you know? Yeah. I just loved the way that he related. And I loved the way that he like related his little small town. That's actually what I was going to ask you about, Laura, because you wrote a novel in which your town is a character. And in this podcast, this town, Vernon, is very much a character. He describes the town as if it's a human being. He talks about the town being Mm -hmm. the kind of place where, like, someone says hello and they ask how you're doing, but they don't really want to know much more than that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Where, where, like, people are well-meaning and lovely and, you know, cool, but also really skeptical. It was like, it's very New England in many ways, is it not? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I I, I guess I'm partial to my little town of Exeter. I think we're a little more friendly than that. But what it reminded me of when I was listening to how small this town was and how they were like, well, prior to this, like the big news was like somebody became Winston Churchill's secretary. Like that was like the big news in Vernon before this. And it more reminded me, instead of where I live now, where I, you know, it reminded me of where I grew up in Vermont, in this very small town where there was like a soda machine with like four flavors and nothing happened. And then surprise, the two kids that killed the Dartmouth College professors are from our high school. Yeah. And we have this light shed upon our town, much like surprise, we have these two boys that like come out of the woods who aren't who they say they are. And everybody in town is trying to help them. And then they're like, maybe there's more to the story than we realize. So that's kind of what it reminded me of. It's like that that small town where we think we know what's happening, but actually we don't. So, Toby, I don't get the impression the town of being small as, as it is, is specific. Like the town has a hospital. The town has an RCMP office. Like it's big enough to have those things. We hear yep. a has, lot of AM radio stations. Yeah, it has AM radio. <laughs> it just seems to be and maybe it's the writing. It just seems to have a very specific character to it. Is that writing? Is that what it is that I'm I'm getting here? Because it just seems to be characterized just so beautifully. Yeah, I think he characterizes a few places like the whatever it is, the sea store that's by the beach that everybody likes and the hostel 
It's like grandma's quilt, but if it were a building. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's it all takes place in this small community. And then there's certain places in the community where it takes place. So, you know, you've got a very strong sense of, you know, it's basically, it's like the hostel, the hospital, the police station, and then uh, Tammy's house sometimes. And then there, I guess it's at the sea store, which is where they were camping behind and showing up at. So, you know, in that way, it feels a little bit like, you know, Southern Gothic novel or whatever, where there's like a community where everything happens and weird stuff happens, but sort of the community is is one of the characters. Hmm. Let's talk about Tammy, because she is the action here. She is the intervener. She is the person. I mean, everybody in Vernon saw these two boys. Everybody knew who they were by sight. These two incredibly skinny young men walking around their town. Um, they had a you know very stark appearance. They were wandering around. They'd buy fruit in the cow store. Um, she saw them, and she's like, they need help. They're starving. And she went to look for them actively to help them. Kevin, what do you think about Tammy as a person, as a character in the podcast, the way that you know she's presented to us? And what do you think of what she did uh, initially there, like going on the hunt proactively, dragging her husband out into the woods with her to look for these kids? She's okay. <laughs> she she's Laura Bricker. Yeah, Kevin. she's no, Laura I mean, Bricker. She, she, I I relate to Tammy. It's funny because I mean I think to answer that question you got to jump all the way to the end of episode four, in which she's looking back and the way how she felt because she thought she was doing at the time she thought she was doing all of these great things and being a good Samaritan, and that she was duped and so she felt really embarrassed and to this day feels really embarrassed by the fact that she got taken for a ride along with everybody else. And it's funny how the other people in the community, none of them see her that way, right? They see her as like someone who stepped out and did, you know, did a good thing and embodied all of the better angels of our nature. And it was not like, you know, the put-upon fool. Her maternal instincts kicked in, hockey mom, Lipstick. I don't know. What was the thing that what's her face said that that's, she, you know, she's a tough hockey mom. Isn't it true, though, Toby, that Tammy, even if she was duped, saved these boys lives like even if they're super assholes, liars, con people, they likely would have died. I mean, with their diet, they were out in the wilderness. I mean, something really bad could have happened to them for better or for worse, whether or not she was fooled. She saved them, right? Doesn't she deserve credit for that? Yeah, absolutely. And I and I do feel like again, I think one of the good choices was at the end of the fourth episode, which is, you know, the end of the first part of the series, is that he does make that clear. Like he makes that case. You know, I'm sure she's embarrassed listening to it, but he's very uh specific about how not just he, but about how other people see her role. And that she was kind of, and even up till the end, she was kind to them, even after she realized that she'd been duped, you know, and the parents understand it and they're embarrassed and horrified, but thankful and sorry. And, you know, at the end, she packs up her family and goes to say goodbye to Kyle, who is unable to make that sort of emotional connection with her or sort of understand that his actions might have negatively impacted her and yet she's still there and you, and you yeah. can tell that she's emotionally invested in him despite everything yeah 
What about you, Laura? Like, I know that you would have intervened. That's absolutely who you are. I know that you would have done the right thing to the extent that she did, even if you knew something might be up. What would your level of betrayal or anger be? Would you be able to still feel like you had done the right thing, even if Kyle slash Tom were standing there smirking at you after being uh, discovered? Yeah, I wanted to slap the little smirk off his face at that part in the podcast when they were like, say thank you. And he's like, thanks. I'm like, fuck off, you little fucker eating your fucking avocados in your little fucking tent. Like, <laughs> but I really related to Tammy. Like, I, I've been places with friends of mine when I am curious about people that I see in a certain situation and I'm like, hey, what's going on? And they're like, Lara. Like, let's move on. Let's not get involved in that. And I'm like, no, like, I'm curious, like, what's happening here? And in this case, every time I listened to something Tammy did, I was like, Tammy's like my soul sister. She's like, and then I found out they're in the woods. And I was like, where are they in the woods? And then I found out they were at the store. And I'm like, when are they at the store? And then I found out they're at the store. And I'm like, here's some money. And here's a note to call me on the phone. And I'm like, Tammy, you and I are like bonded forever because this is exactly what I would have done. But I also would have been me being me, I would have been super pissed off when at the end of that, going out on this limb to help these kids who, especially the younger one, really needed help, were not who they said they were going to be. And and especially when that comes to light and the older one is not more appreciative of the role that Tammy played in trying to get him help. Because yeah, he's got his whole plan. He thinks he doesn't need help. We're going to flee our parents, yada, yada, yada. Tammy did him a big service. And so if I was in that situation, I don't know if I would have survived without being like, hey, I'm trying to help you, 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 you shitheads. Like, come on. Um, just treat him like cats. Yeah, like, no, I'm just saying like, I I relate a lot to Tammy because of that desire to find out what's going on and to help somebody that legitimately needs help. And then to find out that even though they legitimately need help, they're not grateful, not thankful, not necessarily wanting help. And then in the end, when they have the opportunity to reflect on the help you've given them, still not appreciative, um, I'm going to bitch slap them. Only the older one, not the younger one. Let's step away from the wilderness of this discussion. Oh, step away from the wild boys. The wild boys and talk some business. Is that okay? Yeah, let's start that music. All right. So just want to let you know that on Patreon right now, we've got the latest episode of Leave It to Bricker. Yes, Lara's special podcast. And Lara, Lara Bricker, <laughs> just... <laughs> She's so the, dirty. She, this, this episode is called Boobs on the Bar. Of course it is. And it's like the weirdest, curious George story ever. (laughs) (laughs) Curious George and the memories on the shelf. Yeah, yeah. So if somebody whips him out in Exeter, you know Laura Bricker immediately gets a page. Mm. And uh, she (laughs) investigates. It's like Aquaman. Yes. Yes. Yes, but instead of starfish, they're... <laughs> I am the indecent exposure expert of Exeter. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just by observation, not by practice. Mm. No, no. Also, want to let you know that on Patreon right now, you can sign up for our live taping of the next Married with Podcast. Oh, I love doing that. We're going to be doing it uh, live on Crowdcast Video February 15th. The day you, after Valentine's Day. Oh, yeah, maybe a lot of like broken hearts and I hope your broken heart's dishes. Not broken. I hope my heart's not broken because you forgot Valentine's Day again. Hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, yeah. So anyway, jump on, send us an email, join the Facebook group, and give us a question. Uh, we'll do some relationship advice, and we'll also have folks come on and ask their own questions or give their own advice too. Yeah, and Valentine's Day is a bullshit fake holiday. You know, I'm just joking, right? Oh, thank God. <laughs> I just, it's I like do. I gotta like go that, get a card. But yeah. I, I do like that weird, cheap, heart-shaped um, Whit- Whitman sample. Or the thing. small side, right? You can just get that at the goddamn like drugstore. I'll be fine. All right. Yeah. The, 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 kind, the kind that's the size of a teacup saucer. Yeah, the kind yeah. that has the weird orange one that you, you take one bite of and you oh. throw that one away. Jeez, you're like, oops. It's fine. It's, it's, like, totally. ru- it's like Russian roulette with chocolate. <laughs> Russian roulette with bad chocolate. Sorry, Whitman's, if anyone who works there, but that orange one is terrible. Why? Why? Yuck. All right, Kevin. Before we end our business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are... Aaron Fox and Aaron Wolf. <gasps> Bless you. And Wolfie. Yeah. Bless you. Wow, a theme. I thought it was a, yeah, I thought we'd go with a theme there. <laughs> so apparently the Patreon patron saints are not randomly selected. <laughs> not not this week. I thought it was a good, I thought it was a good matchup. All right. And thus ends the business section. I'm going to go ahead and fade that music out. All now. right. Oh. <laughs> See what I did there? I saw what you did there. All right, so Kevin, I want to address the um, eating situation Mm -hmm. because the podcast does give us a trigger warning about eating disorders. And we do hear about the boy's diet, which clearly is an eating disorder. But as of the end of episode four, that is addressed as eating behavior and starvation and their eating habits and their eating obsessions. It has not been clearly identified in the podcast yet as an eating disorder. Can you just talk a little bit about what you've observed so far in the storytelling there? Well, two things. I mean, one is that we're going to find out that this is one of the driving factors for why they left their home. What we find out is that Rowan, who we know is, is Will, that we find out that like the parents uh, were concerned about you know his eating behaviors. That part of their fake story may bear some truth as well. Is that, is that what you're, well, no, that, that, what you're that, teasing out? Well, no, they said that that really happened. Okay. That well, that was one of the reasons. Okay. Why he wanted to leave okay. and why? I mean, we'll find out a little more later. I I believe when they get to it. Anyway, like it, it wasn't. It was was not an inconsequential piece of this puzzle, right? But I like to think that if these two teens were sisters, that people would immediately have identified that eating behavior as anorexia or a similar disorder because, you know, it's just when you're, you know, that emaciated, it's it's very obvious. But for boys, people don't think that boys can be anorexic. And so this is, you know, it's certainly bad for young women, I know, but it doesn't really get diagnosed for boys. And this is clearly what was going on with him. And he clearly needed medical intervention. And it was lucky enough that he did get that. What do you think about that, Toby? Because the focus of the investigators did really seem to be about are they who they say they are? Are they from where they say they're from? Especially in the case of, you know, the RCMP officer pro se, that's his main concern, right? Is are these kids fooling us or not? Yeah, which, you know, I, I guess that's valid. I think you can do both, which is, I mean, they eventually get Will into the hospital. They were so unforthcoming about themselves that I think it was important 
to find out who they were in order to get some sense of what the hell was going on. Hmm. Because you've got Will who's who's starving to death, and you've got Tom who seems completely blasé about it. It's like, oh, well, you know, whatever. Shrug. YOLO. So I think in order to get some kind of handle on the situation, if you're not going to find out from them, I don't, I, you know, it seems like they have to find out who they are because they clearly need help to some degree. Hmm. And Will needs to be in a hospital and Tom needs mental health care or whatever if, if he's that sort of immune to his brother's suffering. Uh, it does not bode well. Hmm. Laura, what do you think about this journey that the brothers make Tammy go on where they're allegedly looking for their ID papers and they (laughs) go up to uh, Revelstoke and go into the woods for a couple hours to go to their fake cabin to have a conversation with their fake parents about their fake ID papers? That's some kind of bullshit, Rebecca. Just going to say. That's nonsense. Especially as you hear the story play out, you're like, are you fucking kidding me right now? I mean, they're keeping up the facade, but as we later see when this sort of house of cards that they've created is crashing down, this, we're going in the woods, but you're not allowed to come, and we're going to come out several hours later, and we're not going to tell you anything, and blah, blah, blah. I guess it shows their intelligence. It shows their desire to keep, particularly the older brother. I'm just going to say, I feel like, again, he is the driver here. It shows this desire to keep up this facade, to keep up this ruse, to keep everybody off the scent. But if I was Tammy, this is about the time where I would start to be like, yeah, something's a little off here. After I take the boys home, I might come back here and trek out into the woods myself and see what I find out there. See, to me, like as the parent of kids about this age, yeah, I understand the length with which... A kid who's caught in a lie and can't figure out how to get out of that cycle, like they will dig their heels in and make the lie worse. Yeah. Yeah. And you as a sometimes you as an adult are like, I really don't want this to be a lie. I really want it to be true. So I will go on this journey with you because in the case that it is true. I will go on the lie with you. <laughs> you know, it reminded me of uh, that Seinfeld episode where George doesn't want to go to a board meeting of Susan's uh, charity foundation. So he says he's got a house out in the Hamptons and he keeps up making these lies yeah. about the house. And and the parents are like, oh, we let go and see the house. So he's like, fuck it. I'm going to take him out to the Hamptons. And they keep driving and he's like talking about how. The house has two solariums and a, and, and a couple of ponies named something or other and Prickly Pete and all this stuff. <laughs> and it just like keeps going with it. And they finally like breaks down and gives in. But um, it kind of yeah. reminded me of that. You got to commit to the story. Exactly. So Kevin, you were a, a TV feature reporter. And I was thinking about you when yeah. we hear about these, you know, reporters going and do this long uh, TV package about the boys and their story. And then getting this tip saying, hey, I think that's my brother. And then having to scrap the finale of the TV news show they were planning and do a whole new thing. Mm-hmm. Has that ever happened to you when you were doing something like this? When I would scrap everything? Yeah, and- when you had to just put a whole new like TV uh, thing together. Like, What would you do in that situation? Well, I th- I, that's exactly what they did. Is I, I would do exactly that. I mean, I, I think they were really up against it because they had like one more show left for that season. It yeah. wasn't like, well, we could come back to it some other time. And it sounds like it was a fantastic 
fabulous fucking show. What do you think of the decision to just roll the whole time in the car while Tammy was on the phone with the mom? You can hear her on the phone kind of saying, I think it's her, maybe it's her. Yeah, they've made up this huge elaborate story. I hope this is it. <laughs> See, I still am skeptical because it's just, they, their story seems so believable. That captured a lot of, you know, the drama of the thing falling apart. I mean, if we just heard like, oh, then the, the you know the jig was up, and someone said, hey, you're actually Kyle. I said, okay, you you got me. It wouldn't have resonated the same way as all of this did. Not only the way it sort of just slowly fell apart, but the fact that we could hear it. I mean, like if you're on television and talking to your mom at the same time, it's hard to keep the facade up yeah. that you're really this wilderness boy. Yeah. So, Toby, that speaks to the storytelling here because it is just a tricky edit. I kept thinking about this as I was listening to this. This is one of those stories where it would be so easy to do it wrong, like to keep the secret for too long where the listener knows, okay, you're just you're building fake suspense here or to give away too much too soon and then just be repetitive what do you think of the construction of the narrative here? Like, did they give the information at the right pace, you think? Uh, yeah, I think just what you said. I do think that a lesser podcast would have tried to maintain the sort of, are they really Bush Boys or not thing further into it? I mean, you find out after kind of getting the story of the people who kind of buy into it, you almost immediately start getting some skepticism. And while it's a little bit up in the air as to like who's right, you start to get hints pretty quickly that all is not what it seems. And he, they kind of parse it out, where I think it's, it's probably how it played out in real time for the people who weren't firmly in either one of those camps. It's like, well, they seem to know a little bit more about popular culture than they ought to. Oh, they seem to be able to use a computer. And the way he kind of portions out that information, you know, feels organic. And at the same time, the mystery kind of changes a little bit, right? From are these Bush boys and, you know, what are they doing coming to civilization after living this really primitive life to, okay, so that's not exactly what's going on. So who are they? What What is the story? And then I think it brings up sort of a lot of other somewhat more interesting, at least in my mind, questions rather than just like, did they really live this life that they say they do to more like, you know, what's what's the story? What is their relationship? Why do they have these weird ideas about diet? Why are they so yeah. sort of blocked? What's with the avocados, Toby? The avocados. Yeah, no, no root vegetables. I, where are you coming from? Um, so I don't, I don't know. I, I kind of felt at the beginning, like, is this really what it's going to be? It's like, are they just looking in to see whether these people really grew up this way? But then it becomes a much richer story, I think. And I, and I think they kind of hint that we're going to find out more about this stuff. And the other thing I thought was, was sort of interesting that he doesn't talk about it all, but it's something we've seen before, which is the idea of folie adieu, uh, which my French pronunciation, I'm sure, is awful. But it's sort of a shared delusion where the two of them sort of feed upon each other to create this sort of alternate reality in which they're living. We had a little bit of that in The Slender Man with those two young girls, uh, the beautiful creatures, uh, murders that we, we talked about in the deep dive. is a similar thing where you have two people kind of feeding on each other and sort of egging each other on to a certain extent. Yeah. I also loved uh, the cop character here. He's yep. like the Javert in the Les Miserables story, right? You have Pro Se, skeptic from the start, giving these press conferences. Was he representing himself? 
<laughs> Constable Pro say <laughs> feeding these feeding these information out to the to the public slowly. Well, it's uh really interesting. These boys say they're from the bush, yet they had a VCR. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm like, I could give a better impersonation of someone living in the bush than these guys. I grew up in Vermont. I had no electricity. I did legit live in the bush compared to these boys. Yeah. Okay? yeah. Just saying. I th- they don't know how to cut wood or stack wood or do any of the yeah. the bush activities. Yeah. Uh, I, I just thought he was a really interesting character and an interesting foil. And he did seem uh, really excited when they got caught. And he did give that incredible quote to the media, right, Kevin? When when the news went oh, yeah. live, when that TV special aired, yeah, he said it was. He said it was not like the boys have been suckled by a she wolf. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was great, but you know, it brings the question because are the people in this town were they beguiled or are they gullible? Because I think by definition they can't be both. They got to be one or the other. I think they can be both. Well, I'm telling you, you can't pick one. you got to pick one. Well, there's the thing. We have heard there there have been bush people. We heard that in the podcast. Mm-hmm. That that has happened. There are people who live in the wilderness. Who fled the Vietnam War. Who have go, had yeah. limited contact. And so, like, how can they maybe be, they could be both beguiled and gullible at the same Why not? They're Canadian. Why not? All right, well, just ask it this way. Were they gullible? <laughs> Laura, what do you think? Were these people gullible? Well, I mean, here's the thing. This reminds me of this book that I loved called um, Where the Crawdads Sing. Has mm-hmm. anyone read yes. that? Yeah. And and there's like this swamp girl who like lives in the swamp and like she's mysterious and she comes out and she like lives in the swamp because like her dad died or whatever and she like lives off the land. So when you first hear this story, you think, oh, this might be like a real life, like Where the Crawdads Sing sort of story. So I guess it's hard to feel like you're being gullible because they're like kids. I mean, they're teenagers, but they're kids. And the one boy who is so like dramatically underweight and he looks sickly, I looked up his pictures online. How can you not feel some sort of compassion towards that? But at the same time, you're like, what the fuck? It, that, and that's what drew me into the story is like, somebody's like living out in the woods and they're like, they, they've had no contact with civilization. It's like, I don't know if any of you recall the main hermit. Like it was the same. I was like infatuated with the main hermit, the guy that was like living out in the woods for like however long. And like, he just had his little shack and he didn't have anything. Or like um, this past summer we had like river Dave in New Hampshire and like river Dave was out living on his like plot of land. And again, same sort of thing. So it's hard in this situation because these are, people that you would feel compassion for when you see them at face value, which is how you initially see them. So it's hard to like, as their story comes on, you're like, yeah, some things don't up here. Some things are a little sketchy, blah, 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 blah. But when their their story first comes out, why wouldn't you take it at face value? I guess is the question. They're, they're like teenage boys and one of them looks not well. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Chameleon Wild Boys? What do you think, Laura Bricker? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this podcast? I loved this podcast. I feel like we listen to so many true crime podcasts and so many of them are like murderers or serial killers or like somebody like Dirty John. And what I loved about this to me this was a fresh story. And even though I could have Googled this story and I could have found out what happened with these boys and what the eventual conclusion was. I held myself back from doing that because the storytelling in this podcast was done in such a way that 
I wanted to keep listening to the story. I wanted to hear what happened next. It was told in such a way by the host, Sam, who has this personal connection to the story and this personal connection to the community that you want to keep listening because he tells it in a way with his own connection, but he's just a really good storyteller. And I related to Tammy, who is somebody that steps in to help the boys. I related to Sam, who's going back to reinvestigate the story. I just thought this was super interesting. And I can't wait for the second half of this podcast because I really want to know how it concludes. Toby Ball. Yeah, I I agree with Laura. I I, I really love this podcast. You know, I've talked uh, recently about how I think we're in sort of this rich run of podcasts, like really great series. Um, And I think this is one of them. You know, again, it, it starts with a story that, you know, it's got like a little bit of flash in the, you know, the Bush brothers. But what he kind of uncovers, I think, is is sort of more interesting than that. I think the structure and the pace at which he tells the story and the way information is parsed out is just really done, you know, just about perfectly the you know authorial voice or the narrative voice i think is perfect for this subject matter um and it's funny because i did before i listened to the last episode we reviewed i'd written up a few notes for for talking and i was like oh you know i really wish this this and this and then as they kind of talk about where they're going further on it seems as though all that stuff's going to be addressed so Really looking forward to the second half of it. Uh, I think it's been great so far. So just like the the highest of thumbs up. Kevin Flynn. I'm also a thumbs up. I really enjoy the host, Sam Mullins. I think that his storytelling is sublime. And I think that this is one of those stories that the stakes aren't very high, right? I mean, it, it's not millions of dollars on the line. Something that already happened. Something that already happened. It seemed like that the, there was concern about the health of the boys. But... This isn't like the Hollywood con queen chameleon, but just the way that the story is told, that's the strength of the podcast. It's in the storytelling. I want to go along because the the facts are very compelling, but the way it's presented is what makes this really a fine podcast. Yeah, I agree. Huge thumbs up for me for Wild Boys. I love that they found this talented storyteller with this great story and did this series. And I think it was really smart to put it in the chameleon feed. I think this could have been, you know, a standalone podcast on its own, but it fits in the chameleon feed. And it was really, really clever to give this podcast brand this breadth and to say it doesn't have to be like an ongoing current newsy, heisty thing. It can be a thing that happened of somebody pretending that they were somebody who they weren't. Um, I just think it's very, very clever, beautifully made, beautifully produced, gorgeously edited. And what I mean by that, I just want to say Karen Duffin, who edited this podcast, has worked on some great shows, including This American Life. When you know you have a good editor is when you can hear a person's voice Uh, authentically come through. This is a thing we've all commented on. And yes, that is about the host and the writing, but that is also about the editor. And that's a huge thing I kept thinking about over and over and over again when I listened to this podcast. So huge thumbs up for me all around for Chameleon Wild Boys. All right, well, that's going to do it for us. But before we go, Lara Bricker, do we have a Cat of the Week this week? We do have a Cat of the Week. It's actually a Dog of the Week. And Mm. there are several reasons why I chose this. Number one, the dog's owner spells their name the same way as me. Ooh. Lara Simmons. 
We are sisters in solidarity. I don't often see somebody else with L-A-R-A. So based on that, I'm just going to pick your animal because I love you. Nice. But I love Lara's story because it mimics my own in a way because I am, as we know, a cat person. I'm a horse person. Buddy the dog has made me a dog person because he is a lovely dog. And Lara writes this. Uh, Lara is nominating Cassie for Cat of the Week. Cassie was her dog who died three years ago, the day before her son's 17th birthday, and she misses Cassie every single day. Before Cassie came into her life, she wasn't a dog person. Her husband actually brought her home while she was on a girls' weekend in L.A. Uh, That might be grounds for divorce. Hmm. However, immediately Lara knew that this was our girl, and she fell in love. She hasn't been able to get another pet because she misses her so much, but she knows the right animal, cat, dog, We'll come into their lives and the time is right. So Laura Simmons and Cassie kind of reminds me of Kevin and Rebecca's little dogs. So that is another um, point in the favor of Cassie the dog. So Laura Simmons, thank you. And if you're Lara Simmons or Lara Simmons, I apologize, but I pronounce it Lara Simmons. All right, Lara Bricker. If folks that are similarly lame, similarly named as you or not. They're as lame as you. <laughs> want to reach out and uh, submit their animals to be Pet of the Week. It could be a dog or a cat or an iguana or an emu, but they will be named Cat of the Week no matter what. How can they find you on Twitter? At Lara Bricker. Of course, you can also email us at crimewriterson at gmail.com. That's how we get many of our pets of the week. Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and give you a thumbs up for your thumbs up review tonight. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball and H. Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you, how can they find you? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and I encourage you to join our incredible community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook group. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the Crime Writers On After Show, Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcasts. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the very handsome and communicative Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we also eat nothing but fruit. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. So, Toby, do you have any ideas about the sign that Laura Bricker should put outside her office? Yes or no? Uh, not for the air. <laughs> <laughs> of course so not. You don't like, do you like Laura Bricker, Inc., I-N-K, Laura Bricker Enterprises? You know what? They could sponsor it, much like they sponsor the uh, Yoga Loft above the bodega. And if they want to sponsor my office, that could be a new page. Sponsor at the $17 a month level. <laughs> Sponsored Laura's office. Wait, what's your rent? Maybe that could be the Patreon level. <laughs> oh, I mean, I can. T- yeah, like they could totally sponsor my rent and I will put their name on my office door. Absolutely. Crime Media. Media.